Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Edward the Fourth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, being all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Yeah, and we now Edward the Fourth. Yes. We haven't had a chance to chat about this at all because I've been away for a week. You have. Feels like I've been gone for ages, and we're straight back into Edward the Fourth. We are indeed. We sort of covered him a bit last time. We have. We're covering some old ground because last week when we did Henry the Sixth and Wars of the Roses, Henry the Sixth was deposed for nine years, replaced by Edward the Fourth, and then Henry the Sixth briefly came back before being completely done away with. Right. So it's some of the old ground, some mm. new ground, but it's all from Edward's perspective this time, rather than Henry's. So last time from Henry's perspective, even from Henry's perspective, I reckon he'd have agreed he was rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> so we um, see what, what did him over, I Hoping for something better. Yeah. So, on with Edward the Fourth. Born in 1442, and he's the son of Richard, Duke of York, and Cecily Neville, and he becomes king for the first time in 1461... So he's about 19 years old when he comes to the throne. Right. And then in 1471, when he's about 29 years old. Okay. So he has a couple of pops yeah. at it. And he is the 14th great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. Probably not on the Christmas card list. Maybe not, but it's more direct now. None of this sort of half-cousins yep, or yep. first-seconds. It's actually yeah. a great-grandfather. In terms of appearance, he's a bit of a looker. Ah. Probably the best-looking king that we've had up to this point. Six foot three in height... That's that's pretty. That's tall. Tallest monarch um, in Britain of all time. Oh really? Yeah. Rex Factor fact. Indeed. Uh, golden brown hair and a strong, well honed physique. Uh, Sir Thomas More said he was princely to behold, of body mighty, strong and clean made. Polydor Virgil. These are almost contemporaries. Um, he said that Edward was very tall of personage, exceeding the stature of more, almost of all others, of comely visage, pleasant look, and broad breasted. And Philip de Comyne said he was the handsomest prince my eyes ever beheld. Crikey. He's a good-looking good man, chat. and he's a big, powerful man as well. Chat. Even at 19, I bet he was six foot three comms. Yeah, and apparently he's very clean at the time. He used to have his head, legs and feet washed every Saturday night, and sometimes more often. Whoa, hold the phone. Maybe excessive, some would <sighs> argue. So, his biography. We'll pick his story up in 1460. Okay. It's during the reign of Henry VI. He's from the Yorkist family... As we said, eldest son of Richard, Duke of York, um, and they are descended from two sons of Edward III, so they have a very strong yeah, claim yeah. to the throne. And he is the eldest of four brothers, the younger ones being Edmund, George and Richard. Right. Uh, the Wars of the Roses was where we had Henry VI, who was a weak, mentally unstable leader, being dominated by his Lancastrian favourites, in particular the Beaufort family and Margaret of Anjou, his wife. And enmity between York and Margaret von Anjou led to outright civil war between Yorkists and Lancastrians. In 1460, York tried and failed to claim the throne. Oh, he just touched it. And nobody... Yeah, that was brilliant. So he came to an act of accord with Henry VI, whereby Henry would rule for the rest of his reign, but York and his heirs Hmm. would inherit the throne. Hmm. However, Margaret von Anjou isn't going to have this, because she has a son, Prince Edward. So, at the Battle of Wakefield in 1460, York... Uh, Edmund, one of the younger brothers, and uh, the Earl of Salisbury are all killed. Yeah, and that was a huge, huge defeat for them. Huge it? defeat for the Yorkists. And then the Battle of Barnet uh, in the same year, Warwick is, or maybe that's Northampton, I might put that down wrong. Warwick is defeated. Um, he's another ally of the Yorkists. And he was in control of Henry VI, but Henry VI is then brought back in control of the Lancastrians. Yeah. So the Lancastrians have inflicted a huge blow onto yeah. the Yorkists. Yeah. Cometh the man, cometh the Edward the Fourth to be. 1461 is when he hears the news, because he's gone off to Wales to prepare to take on the Tudor forces to stop them, who are Lancastrians as well, stop them linking up with the wider Lancastrian army. Right, yeah. yeah. plan was obviously that his dad would sort out the north, he'd sort out Wales, Warwick would sort out another bit. Unfortunately, two of them have gone rather awry. Right. So he's on, and he's out on his tod. He's out on his yeah, tod in, yeah. on the marches. So he is now the heir as well. He's inherited it all from his father, which is Duke of York. He is now, in effect, the Yorkist heir to the throne. Bad day. And he's only 18. Yeah. Very bad. So he raises up an army and, at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross, inspires his troops to victory against Owen and Jasper Tudor. 
Warwick hears about this and thinks, aha, someone's won a battle. So he speeds off to meet Edward in the Cotswolds, and they decide the only option they have is to get to London and crown Edward mm. as king. Yeah. The problem is, they've got a small army, and Margaret of Anjou and the Lancastrians are much closer to London. And the Londoners, if I remember, they were dodgy. Well, the Londoners, thankfully for Edward, do not like Margaret oh, right, and okay. the Lancastrians. See them as a sort of pillaging, raping, looting northern army that they're not very fond of. So mm. they don't let Margaret into the city. Margaret, Henry VI, the Lancastrians forced to withdraw in the meantime. Edward and Warwick race to London, promising to behave, and sure enough, proclaim Edward as King Edward IV. Successfully? Well, what's going to happen now is we have to have a battle because we have two kings. Right. And we've never had this before, where we have two kings at large. Usually when we've had this sort of thing, it's when there's been usurpation, somebody's been captured. Yeah. Here, Henry yeah, yeah. VI is up north somewhere. Being king. Being king. Edward IV down south being king. Yeah. Can't last. No. So we have the Battle of Towton, the major battle of this period uh, in Yorkshire, fought in blizzard conditions, despite being at the end of March. Henry VI and Margaret uh, aren't actually there, they are in York. But Edward and Warwick are there at the heart of the battle, and it's an overwhelming victory for the Yorkists. Is this the one that we said was the bloodiest battle? It was indeed. We'll talk about that oh, later right, in okay. to see yeah. why. But it's an outright Yorkist victory, and Edward IV is now firmly established as king, with Henry VI, Margaret of Anjou, and Prince Edward off in exile. Right. So, yeah, Do we know where? Uh, well, they're sort of going around sort of the north of England, Welsh borders, Scottish yeah. borders, all around there. So, his first reign, he is king, 1461. However, the government is largely dominated by Warwick. Yeah. Well, he did a lot of work. Indeed. Well known as the kingmaker yeah. for his decisive role. Um, he largely dominates the early years. He believed that he was the key to Yorkist power, and so should have a pretty large say in how things run. Mm. Edward wanted to be his own man, so there's a sense of impending... Yeah, well, there's going to be a clash. Indeed. Um, he's 32 years old, Warwick, so he's 13 years older than Edward, more experienced, a bit more established. And he's also the Chamberlain of England, the Captain of Calais. His brother is made Earl of Northumberland, brother John, his brother George, Archbishop of York and Chancellor. Very, very powerful, the Neville family, very powerful. Mm. Pretty much running the show. And he's very popular with the public, Warwick, regarded as a courageous knight, and he's very good at propaganda. So he can get the public on his side if he wants to. Uh, well, how would you propaganda in those days? Just... Well, they would have messages proclaimed, mm, so they okay. get people in London to read out saying, oh, Margaret of Anjou, look what she's been doing. You never guess what she's been up to. I, be I bet she'd do that if she yeah. came to London. Oh, who's that at the door? <laughs> it's Margaret of Anjou. <laughs> okay. In the north, um, where Henry VI and Margaret are at large, uh, there are various Lancastrian rebellions. And so Warwick, along with other Yorkists, is the man to really take the fight to them, put it down while Edward stays down in the south. So, uh, so Warwick's still doing the work? Warwick's still doing a lot See, of the that's work. Why he's, that's why he's bossing him. Indeed. Mm. And Warwick is now making negotiations with the slippery French king, Louis XI, right. to get a peace treaty between England and France, and he's hoping to secure it by a marriage between Edward IV and a French princess. Right. Powerful yeah. potential yeah, yeah. there. So, 1464, Council of Reading, Warwick and other nobles increasingly put pressure on Edward to stop delaying, stop dithering, and just agree to the marriage, to the peace treaty, mm. we can all move on yeah. and be happy. Get your own way. At this point, Edward rather sheepishly admits that actually, four months ago, he'd already married. No. An Englishwoman called Elizabeth Woodville. Blimey. Does that happen? Does that, I thought they had to elope to Scotland or something. No, he just, um, well... Talk about her. Elizabeth Woodville um, is 27 years old, so she's four years older than Edward at this point. About medium height, said to have been very beautiful with blonde hair and quite an alluring smile. She met Edward after the death of her first husband, so she'd been disinherited, and apparently she contrived to meet Edward when he was out hunting in Whittleby Forest uh, near Grafton. She waited behind a large oak tree that she knew he was going to go past, and then sort of jumped out, told him of her misfortune. Then Edward, being a bit of a ladies' man, thinks, ah, I'm going to have my way with this lovely maiden. But she refuses, uh, saying, my liege, I know I'm not good enough to be your queen, but I'm far too good to be your mistress. So she demands marriage as the price of her virtue. And of course, by being refused, Edward is even more excited and yeah. in lust. So, quite, um, not exactly on the spur of the moment, but pretty lacking in political foresight. So in Parliament, he just goes, <coughs> a bit of a problem. Um, crumbs. I'm exactly. Clanger. Problem is, not only has he got this clangor, but she is entirely unsuitable 
to be as queen in the eyes of uh, mm. contemporaries. She's a widow, whereas queens usually are meant to be virgins. Mm. Her husband had been killed fighting for the Lancastrians. Trouble. Trouble indeed. Her family were very minor nobility, so essentially she's considered something of a commoner. And indeed, she's the first English queen since 1066. Yeah, because there was former alliances. So since the yeah. conquest, it's always been foreign alliances, but here there's no financial value, no political value, purely oh, yeah. for himself. Oh, good old dear. So the council, as you might expect, are rather dumbfounded by this revelation. And uh, openly argued against it, saying that she was not his match, however good an affair she might be, and he must know well that she was no wife for a prince such as himself. But they were already married. Yeah, do one. Nothing they could do yeah, about it. They exactly. just had to deal with it. Yeah. So they do try and deal with it, but as you might expect, Warwick isn't too happy about this. Uh, for one thing, he's not very happy that he'd been kept out of the loop. Yeah. And yeah. thus, clearly, Edward's doing his own thing when Warwick thinks I should be the one running the show. The Woodville family is not just Elizabeth, but she has seven sisters, all of whom are unmarried, and all of whom become the prime um, marriageable women for the most illustrious noble heirs. So nobody else with daughters is allowed to marry them off to powerful noble sons. Until these are, until all, these are all married. Including Warwick, who had two daughters, who then pushed down the pecking order. Really? I didn't know that's how it happened. They're, Warwick's like Warwick the buzzkill. Uh, yeah, he's not much fun, this guy. He's just a bit angry. And Indeed. She also has a couple of brothers who get married as well, and particularly notoriously, her brother John, uh, at the age of 20, married the Duchess of Norfolk when she was 80, <laughs> which was said at the time to have been a diabolical marriage. <laughs> well, yeah, I bet. What are they have in common? Well, I don't know. And as well as this, we see something of a demotion in power for the Neville family, for Warwick's family. So his brother, George dismissed as Chancellor and replaced by Elizabeth's father. So he's seeing a real political threat that mm. the Woodville family are going to become more important than his own. Wow, through this one marriage. Yeah. Indeed, and particularly irksome for Warwick is his negotiations with France. It's not completely destroyed his attempts to get a treaty, but it's a bit embarrassing. He said, sorry, this marriage thing, he's actually already married, yeah, but we can still be friends. Yeah. Warwick would have stood to gain a lot from um, any deals that were made, Edward allows him to continue, but he increasingly favours the rival Burgundians. And in 1468, Edward's sister is married to the Duke of Burgundy, thus ending all hope of the French alliance. And this is the last straw for Warwick. Right. So Warwick decides to rebel. And he does so linking up with Edward's brother George, who is now the Duke of Clarence. Edward the rubbish Fourth. Edward. Edward, Edward yeah. IV, yeah. the king. Yeah. His younger brother, George, Duke of Clarence, has been a perpetual nuisance. He's power-hungry, he has ambitious, and he really lacks judgment. So he joins forces with Warwick, hoping that he will be made king instead of Edward mm. IV. Particularly because Edward and Elizabeth, at this stage, only have three daughters. They don't have any sons. Yeah. So, Warwick and Clarence incite various rebellions in the north, which distract Edward, who goes off to try and deal with them. He realises he doesn't have enough troops to deal with it, so he waits for his allies, led by Earl of Pembroke, to come and join him. At this point, Warwick and Clarence declare for the rebels, and at the Battle of Edgecott Moor, 1469, uh, they defeat and execute the Earl of Pembroke. And Edward's big army coming up to support him, taken out. Nice. Indeed. So the Earl of Pembroke, he's a Tudor? Uh, no, Jasper Tudor right. was the Earl of Pembroke, but because he was Lancastrian, oh, he's he's technically yeah. had his title taken away from him. But he is still at large. So when Edward hears about this... His army that is with him in the north abandon him, and he just waits quite patiently uh, to be arrested, and then passively goes along with uh, all of Warwick's commands, signing things and being quite genial and well-humoured and just um, just going along with it. Really? He does. Well played, sir. Well played. Damn. <laughs> it's very well played, because when Warwick gets in control, it's something of an anticlimax for him, because he can't execute Edward because he's got no real remit to, and there'll be massive um, recriminations. It's not really clear what he actually wants to do. He makes no effort to have Clarence crowned instead of Edward. And law and order completely breaks down because there isn't a king there to have authority yeah. and Warwick isn't able to displace him. So, other than executing the father and brother of Elizabeth Woodville... Right, yeah, yeah. As you do. Um, he's at a stalemate. Particularly because Edward, by not running away, by going along with everything, has been so compliant that they can't really stick anything on him. 
So now there's just no one really in charge. No one really in charge. So uh, Warwick has to release Edward. <laughs> what a good, what a well played. Let's him out, and uh, army is raised, put down all the rebellions, and then there we go. Edward's back out there, a little bit awkward, trying to make friends again, but they're sort of so. But he's no tense. longer king. Edward is king again. Oh, he's king again. I thought it meant he was just let oh, no, out he's... and trying to find a job like in a bar. Or oh something. no, he's let out, in, kinging again, but. Maybe a bit of tension mm, with Warwick, possibly. Clarence, and Edward. Anyway, 1470, Warwick and Clarence try again, inciting more rebellions in Lincolnshire and Wales, but this time Edward puts them down easily. And too much has happened now, so Warwick and Clarence are forced to flee to Calais. Right, so he's done for. Seems to be done for. However, this is where Louis XI comes in. Slippery chap, we know Slippery this. chap, known as the Universal Spider, he engineers an alliance between Warwick and Margaret of Anjou. Oh, no, not her again. The Lancastrians. Brings these enemies together, hoping that they will get rid of Edward IV, who is mm. pro-Burgundian, and mm. then they will support him, so yeah. he won't have this danger in his own country. So, Warwick and uh, Clarence come back. Edward, unfortunately, has gone north to tackle another rebellion, leaving the way clear for them to come into England, which they do. Unfortunately for Edward, he is completely outnumbered. Montague, uh, Warwick's brother, who had been supporting Edward, changes sides. And Edward thinks, crumbs, haven't got any support or army. I can't take them on. Got to run. run away again. Well, no, this time he knows that it's, n- it's not going to be allowed to wait. So this time he runs. Right. Edward goes off into exile in Burgundy. Right. With his brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Initially, Duke of Burgundy is quite uh, not very keen to really get dragged into this conflict but as part of the agreement with Louis XI Warwick declares war on Burgundy so this forces the Duke's hand so he's like well if England's at war with me I better support the rival king who's the one who's actually actually likes me so he gives him some money gives him some troops sends him back so having been deposed in 1470 Edward comes back 1471 lands at Ravenspur with a small number of troops exactly like Henry IV in 1399 Mm. Same place. Uh, aimed for the Midlands to get reinforcements and attack Warwick. Crucially, Montague and Northumberland in the north let him pass without fighting him. Why? Partly because, although it's a small force, they're definitely going to fight a big battle and Montague and Northumberland would have to raise an army. And they're also not quite sure which side they're... Where to go, yeah. Okay. Buttered. So, Edward gets back. Clarence, his brother, hasn't enjoyed Warwick being in charge because he's now realised that Warwick isn't going to make him king, mm. largely because Henry VI has been restored. Yeah. So as Clarence is only out for himself, he decides to get rid of Warwick, and then Edward links up with his brother, they embrace, they make peace, and Edwards, with only 2,000 men, suddenly gets another 4,000 from his brother. He's now got a strong army, he can take on Warwick. So they occupy London, and then, at the Battle of Barnet, take battle with Warwick and Montague. And once again, it's a big victory for the Yorkists. And Warwick and Montague are both killed. Hey, thank God. Warwick the Kingmaker is no more. Warwick the Buzzkill. Indeed. However, Henry VI's son, Prince Edward, and his wife, Margaret Vonju, are still at large. So, Battle of Tewkesbury. The Lancastrian forces were trying to get to the Severn, again to link up with their Tudor allies in Wales. Edward chases after them, catches them out at Tewkesbury. They fight a battle, and once again, massive win for Edward IV. And Prince Edward, the son of Henry VI, the only son, is killed. Uh, that's it. That's it. While this is happening, unfortunately, the bastard son of Warwick's late uncle, known as uh, Falkenberg, was leading an uprising in southern England, getting Kentish support, rebellious mm. Kents, and uh, tried to march on London. Thankfully, City resists until Edward comes back to rescue them. When they come back, Falkenberg's executed, and now the crown is secure. Right, so the Tudors win. I mean, the, um, the Yorkists win. <laughs> the Yorkists have won. The However, Yorkists. we still have, in the Tower of London, Henry VI. I forgot what happens to him. Well, Edward decides that this whole rebellion thing is a bit tiresome. Yeah. And there's only really one way to actually properly stop it. Put, put him to sleep. Put, yes, he very, very <laughs> kindly puts Henry VI to sleep. Oh dear. No How more Henry Oh, we VI. talked about this. It wasn't, was it, what, Pope Helen? We don't quite know. No. We don't know. Okay. And uh, Margaret of Anjou, no longer a threat, though mm. she's still alive, allowed to remain in England, um, but 1475 was ransomed by the Louis XI, 
but all her lands got removed and she died in 1482 of very little standing and there's no funeral record written probably because she just wasn't considered important enough anymore really? very sad and ignoble end for one yeah. who was so high and mighty yeah queen of the anyway the Lancastrians are in effect defeated job done Edward IV has finally done it so he now has total authority barring Henry Tudor who is an exiled teenager mm. with no force whatsoever he's got complete dominance Elizabeth, in 1471, gave birth to a first son, also called Edward, and he's able to deliver on some of his promises of better governance, law and order. He's able to start governing in the way that he promised he would in 1461. There's been a lot of putting out fires. I mean, I know this is mm. War of the Roses, but it is time we got some you know, subjectivity scores back up. As he does, and he just governs the next ten mm. years with peace, no more rebellions, no more battles. It's strong and it's stable. Mm. The only real spot of bother is his brother Clarence. Um, Clarence and the other brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester, future Richard III, mm. fall out over Warwick's inheritance because they both end up marrying the, the, oh, his yeah. daughters. Um, Edward eventually split it between them, but Clarence is never happy. 1477, his wife dies, and so did the Duke of Burgundy, leaving only a daughter. So Clarence thought, hey, I can marry the Duke of Burgundy's only heir and become, in effect, Duke of Burgundy. <laughs> Edward says, no. Don't think I'm going to let you have that much power, because he's yeah, he's always thoroughly been. untrustworthy. Starts getting treasonous again in 1478. Finally, Edward has him arrested for being a traitor, and he's executed. Really, executed his own brother, allegedly by drowning in a vat of wine. I mean, if you do have to drown someone, it's the kindest way to drown him, I suppose. Maybe. Mm. So he's killed his brother. France, um, he tries to invade in 1475, gets a massive army, but he'd spent lots of time getting his allies to join him as well, but Burgundy, sort of chicken out at the end, decide they don't really want to send any troops. So instead, Edward and Louis XI come to a peace treaty at Picigny, which um, is to last seven years and provides Edward with a very hefty pension that allows him to live off his own means rather than requiring heavy taxation in England. Hmm. Subjectivity scores in a sense. Indeed. 1482 to 83, however, he's starting to get a bit fed up with France, thinking they're not really going along with the terms of the peace treaty, thinking of launching another invasion. However, he becomes ill, Edward IV. Um, it's uncertain quite how it happens. Um, some say that he caused a cold on a fishing trip, others that he suffered an apoplexy, i.e., a stroke or a fit, mm. um, brought on by or generally poor health. Whatever happens, he sort of lingers about for 10 days makes a few changes to his will, and then dies, 1483, just under 43 years old. Oh, that's a shame. He was going to do really well. He was really pushing on, yeah. but catches chill and dies before yeah. his time. Shame. So that is the life and reign of Edward IV. What we'll do now is review him mm. by uh, a number of different factors. So, let's do it. The review. Battleliness. Well, as we've seen... There's a lot of battling taking Certainly place is. here. Certainly Lots is. of battles, and Edward covers himself pretty impressively. Four major battles. First one was Mortimer's Cross, 1461 in Wales. Context, of course, of his just hearing that his father's died, and at the age of 18, suddenly yeah. it's all on his shoulders. The morning of the battle, apparently, three suns appeared in the sky. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, it's something called a parhelion, which is where ice crystals in the air refract the light and create the appearance of mock suns. Oh, right. Quite a rare phenomenon, but it is a genuine yeah. thing. But, of course, at the time, they had no idea about this. Yeah, so there's three suns, yeah. And they think, oh, my God, this must be a portent of something. Mm. Maybe we're going to lose. Edward says, Beeth of good comfort, and dreadeth not. This is a good sign, for those three sons betokeneth the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And therefore, let us have a good heart, and the name of Almighty God... We go against our enemies. That's handy, isn't it? He does, and the soldiers, overwhelmed by this sort of powerful vision, get down on their knees and pray, and of course, Edward inspires them to victory over the Tudors. Very well. And he then uses the three sons as his personal badge later on. Oh, you're right. Mm. So, first victory, very impressive. Yeah, tick. The biggest one, of course, as we said, is Towton. Again in 1461, just after he's been declared king. This is in Yorkshire. So they knew that the Lancastrians were planning a major campaign, so Edward and Warwick raised armies quickly and went off to defeat them before they could become too powerful. So they come to battle 29th of March at Towton. Blizzard conditions, really, really horrible cold weather, and 
very strong winds. Unfortunately for the Lancastrians, the wind is blowing snow into their faces. So start of the battle, the Lancastrians firing off all their arrows, can't see where they're going, and as it turns out, they're landing well short of the Yorkists. The Yorkists can see, so they go along, pick up all the arrows, and shoot uh, them back, aided by the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got more arrows. Does quite a bit of damage, yeah. yeah. Lancastrians eventually realise something's a bit amiss here. So they put down their arrows, charge off, hand-to-hand combat. Very hard, brutal stuff. Before the battle, both sides said that no quarters would be given, i.e. no prisoners. So it's going to be mm. pretty brutal stuff. Initially, the Yorkists' left flank started to collapse under the weight of yeah. the Lancastrians. So Edward personally took command of it, got right into the thick of it, shored it up to rescue that's the morale. Really, that's better. That's good stuff. Eventually, the Lancastrians are broken down and they flee into retreat. And this is when the death toll really rises in the retreat of the Lancastrians because the Yorkists pursue them um, with no mercy whatsoever, butchering as they go. Apparently some were six miles away. <laughs> they were chasing them. Just out and out battle here. At Cock Beck, which is a tributary of the River Wharf, apparently the Lancastrians struggled to get across this stream, which in the icy conditions meant they were being killed in the freezing water or drowning under each other. Apparently corpses being used as bridges by the Lancastrians to, just to get across and get away. That is grim. Over the River Wharf, the bridge collapses under the weights of troops trying to get across it. So some are drowning, some are being killed while they're trying to get out of the river. It was said that it would run, uh, run red with the blood all Grim. around. Why hasn't this been made into a film? Well, it's very, roses, well, it'd be a jolly film. <laughs> yes, it's just the death toll estimated somewhere between ten and 40,000. Wow. Chroniclers would go for the 40,000, but others have said it's probably not that many. Yeah. But proportionately, in terms of troops who were there, more casualties than at the Battle of the Somme. Well, that is a great statistic. It's a great and terrible statistic. Yeah. This is an awful, awful battle. Really shocks people at the time. Even for the medieval period, they think this is not good. Yeah. This is unpleasant. But from a battleiness perspective, Edward fights heroically in the thick of the battle, commanding his troops, helping carry the wounded from the field. Henry VI, of course, he's, he's not even there. Mm. They've got no leadership in Lancastrians. This is what a king should be doing. Yeah, well, he's picking out the points that the last fellow didn't get. Exactly. 1471, ten years later, is when he's coming back to reclaim the throne. Mm. Battle of Barnet, initially, where he's fighting Warwick. Again, the weather plays a, a role here, because there was incredibly thick fog. So the armies can barely see each other, except at very close range. That's something you don't really think about on a medieval battlefield. Mm, but it must have been terrifying, where they're sort of almost you're hearing all the sounds, but you yeah. don't know where it's coming from. And apparently there's lots of confusion. There was one time where Warwick's men mistook um, John de Vere, the Earl of Oxford's emblem for that of Edward's three sons. So it looked quite similar. So Warwick's men started attacking other Lancastrians. That'd and the Lancastrians terrifying. started crying, treason, treason, which really has a massive damage to the Lancastrian morale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then imagine you see someone coming out of the gloom just sort of wielding an axe yeah. or something. Oh, it'd be amazing. Don't even know whose side he's on. Yeah. He doesn't either. And, as we said, Warwick is defeated, having been opposed. And again, Edward is praised for his bravery. Apparently he manly, vigorously and valiantly assaulted them in the midst of the strongest of their battle, where he, with great violence, beat and bore down afore him all that stood in his way. Mm. And finally, of course, again 1471, the Battle of Tewkesbury, where he forces the Lancastrians, marching headlong all across the country, to fight the battle, defeats them, does great damage defeats Prince Edward, the last of the Lancastrian line, and he is again in the thick of the fighting, leads them to victory. There's not much bad, I'm sensing. There's not much bad there, and of course we've got twice that he has won the crown mm. by force. He's the only man to have been deposed, and then to have won it back. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Good Which another good fact. It's full of, full of Rex facts. Full of facts. However, there have been criticisms of Edward for his battliness. Warwick's initial rebellion in 1469 when Edward was arrested. Yeah. The Woodville marriage, of course, had incurred Warwick's wrath and that lost him support from a lot of his nobles. Might have been the reason why he didn't have enough troops to deal with the rebellion in the north because people weren't quite so fond of him as they were before. And he hadn't lived up to some of his early promises, though he wasn't quite as popular as before. And his tardy reaction to the northern rebellions and failure to really deal with it comprehensively meant that he ended up being arrested without actually fighting a battle. 
Oh, uh, yeah, but I mean, he did dealt with it well. But he did then deal yeah. with it well. 1470, again, he's deposed. Uh, Charles Ross, his biographer, criticising him for when he went north to deal with a rebellion, mm. which left the way open for Warwick and Clarence to invade in the south. Yeah. Which he argues is a massive tactical error. But again, you know, there's a rebellion that you've got to... Yeah, you've got to deal with it. Yeah. 1471, it's been argued that he was a little bit lucky in his invasion to reclaim the throne. The Lancastrians were divided. Margaret of Anjou didn't land in England until Warwick had been defeated at the Battle of Barnet. So those forces came too late to help. Then Falkenberg marched on London too late to help Margaret's forces in Wales. So timing-wise, the Lancastrians have got it all a bit wrong, particularly when they don't attack Edward when he's weak. When he first lands, but he's got to deal. He's got to play the cards that he's dealt. He does indeed. We could also argue that he's lucky with a fog at Barnet, mm. mm. where apparently there was one stage where the Yorkists suffered a really serious setback, where one of their flanks got routed from the battle, but because it was so foggy, nobody actually noticed. So the Yorkist morale wasn't damaged because they hadn't yeah. even seen that they'd <laughs> lost a whole chunk of their army. Or nor the other side encouraged. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, he's also been criticised for his lack of activity in the north of England in the 1460s, and this is where we maybe have got a bit more to pin on him. Because as we said, the Lancastrians are still at large, and indeed they were causing lots of trouble. They captured Annick, Bamber and Dunstanburgh. Mm, so they captured these castles. northern places. And it's Warwick and others who do the job of retaking these major castles and cities, and particularly putting down a rebellion at Hexham in 1464, after which Henry VI is recaptured. Edward... Apparently, 1462, he was going to go up and deal with it, but then he caught measles in Durham, mm. and so he came home again. And he doesn't play any further military role after Towton until he gets deposed. So some people criticise him for being a bit too lazy or maybe a bit too incomp- uh, in, uh, complacent. Yeah. That he should have been there in the thick of it. But he knew he could be. That's the and thing, and you could also say there's no need to risk his life unless his presence is absolutely vital. Yeah, and when he's there, my crikey, he sorts it out. Indeed. Scotland is another area where, again, we have a certain amount of lack of activity. 1473, he made a truce with James III to last until 1519, but from 1480, he's complaining that the terms aren't really being seen to and that there's raids and counter-raids. So 1481, he plans a major campaign, but didn't end up going and just launched a small naval raid. 1482, he decided to back the brother of James III, who was Alexander, Duke of Albany, so that he would become the King of Scotland, and in return, um, he'd return Berwick to England and break the old alliance with France. However, again, Edward doesn't actually get round to leading a campaign. Alexander gets a bit bored, renounces his claim, and um, Edward's reluctant to act. So the only thing that does happen is that in 1482, Gloucester, his brother Richard, goes up, captures Berwick, they're ultimately sort of forced to come back without achieving an awful lot. Mm. So there's a lot of promise to do things, but then he never quite bothers. But what was going on at that time? Was there 14... Was it 1460? 14, no, this is 1480s, 1480s, when he's not really got any other threats to the kingdom. He's probably just having a time. He's got his little pension from the kingdom. He's got his little pension. And of course, France is the other major mm. area where we might expect big, impressive victories in the vein of Edward III, Henry V. Louis XI, of course, this cunning French king, basically kept on outmanoeuvring Edward IV. He just kept outwitting him. 1475, Edward had raised his large army, but the Burgundians didn't provide him with any troops. Apparently they were marching through France in the Burgundian territories, but they weren't even allowed to go into Burgundian towns. They wouldn't let them in. So Edward decides, never mind this. The French are going to cut off our supply line soon. Let's have a bit of peace. So the Treaty of Picony... Edward agrees not to pursue the French claim anymore in return for an initial £75,000 payment and then a £50,000 a year pension. Pretty good. It's very good. It's very good and it's good for him, lots of money. Louis, of course, boasts that he managed to evict his would-be conquerors with venison pies and good wine. And indeed, there are people in England who've raised money for taxation, some of the soldiers and the nobles who think, you know, we should be giving it some to the mm. King of France, and mm. we're just taking his money and sitting back and having some food. Yeah, it's not a great military victory. Well, it seems all right. 1480s, he's getting unhappy with um, Louis again, planning to make an invasion, but this is, of course, when Edward gets ill, when he dies. Now, we could argue England benefits because they get the profitable pension. Edward's got plenty of money. Eight years of peace is really it's a good thing. Mm. But... 
maybe not really Edward's original intention when he raised 10,000 men to go off to France. Yeah. And you could argue that for a medieval king in this period, not having any activity or success fighting in France means that he can't be in that upper league with the real, real battle. Yeah, so he's still Edward III, is it? Mm, or Henry V, of course. Yeah. But, oh, that's how, yeah. but it's very impressive, nevertheless. Yeah. Four battles, he's never defeated in battle. Well, that's got to do something, hasn't it? Mm. I think it's very um, impressive. I think it's very impressive. And the, the lack of... The lack of French stuff, right, is still the War of the Roses. You've got a lot to do in England. He's got a hell of a lot to do. I mean, mm. and even when it's peace, he's probably thinking, the country needs rebuilding. Mm. And if not going to war in France helps fund that, that's good. That's good. But it's not It's not got that sort of... that. As you say, that that upper echelon glory. He might others mm. say Henry V might have gone well. No balls to it. I'm I'm going to take yeah. France as well. Yeah, while I'm at it. Yeah, but it's definitely definitely more than six. Mm. I think I'm going to give him an eight. Yeah, seven well. seven point five. Seven point five for you. Eight for me. That's fifteen point five in total for Battlinus. A very good start. Mm. Scandal. He's got plenty to go on here as well. I'm happy to report. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Very yeah. busy, of course. The biggie, Elizabeth Woodville, mm. the marriage, mm. which was completely unsuitable, a common bride whom gives him no political or financial value when Warwick was trying to arrange this prosperous marriage with a French princess. Yeah, that's good. What's more, he knew it was controversial, so he married in secret and didn't admit it for four months until he <laughs> absolutely <laughs> had to. <laughs> yeah, that was when he was clearly just scared of the repercussions. Yeah, yeah. and the repercussions are massive. The rift with Warwick... Um, exacerbated by the promotion of the Woodville family ultimately leads to this period in 1469-71 to 71, where the throne, the crown, changes hands three times. Mm. Edward himself is deposed. Massive, yeah, yeah. massive impact yeah. from this largely impulsive <laughs> act. We also have a couple of executions which some people have criticised him for. Henry VI is criticised as being a bit harsh and treacherous because by this point Henry VI mentally is not really all there. And he was quite happy to be taken into custody by Edward again. And apparently he embraced him and said, Oh, my fair cousin of York, I trust you will do me well and spare my life. To which Edward initially was like, Oh, yes, yes. And then later on thought, maybe not. Yeah, let's just get rid of him. Suggestion yeah. that ten years and the rebellions had hardened him in a way that in yeah. 1461 he was all nice. But by this point he's mm-hmm. like, no, get yeah. rid of him. Job done. And of course, George, Duke of Clarence, he kills his own brother. That is scandalous. That I mean, mm. I know he was out, out, outwardly rebelling, mm. but still. Maybe more of a nuisance than a threat. Some said it was unnecessary. Others say he forgives him quite a lot. He gives him a pretty long yeah, rope and he still times. keeps on tugging at it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, there's plenty more to go on than that. <laughs> He's described by historian Colin Richmond as a personal monarchy of the playboy variety. Heavy eating... Heavy drinking and heavy whoring. Yeah, excellent. This is what I think. Crownland Chronicle, um, sort of post-1478, said that he was a man of such corpulence, so fond of convivial company, vanity, debauchery, extravagance and sensual enjoyment. He sounds awesome. Philip de Comines said Edward was accustomed to more luxuries and pleasures than any prince of his day because he thought of nothing else but women, far more than is reasonable, (sighs) hunting and looking after himself. Sounds, he sounds brilliant. He's a playboy yeah, prince. Yeah, there we go. He also loves his food. Again, yeah. Philip de Comines said, he was young and more handsome than any man then alive. I say he was, because later he became very fat. <laughs> like another chronicle of Dominic Mancini said, in food and drink he was most immoderate. It was his habit, so I have learned, to take an emetic for the delight of gorging his stomach once more. For this reason, and for the ease with, uh, which was especially dear to him, he had grown fat in the loins. Sounds quite a lot like Henry VIII. Well, indeed, we will come back to that yeah. later. There are more than one similarities. But that's, that is excessive yeah, that's brilliant. greediness. Well, and emetic, which is basically something that makes you vomit. Yeah, so you can... A bit Roman. A bit Roman, but it's not an eating disorder where he wants to be thin or he wants to be sick. It's literally so that he can eat more food. Yeah, yeah so he can just keep those jaw muscles working. Indeed. He also oversees a rather risque court, apparently. Uh, apparently he would flirt with the ladies of the court in silken pavilions or sail along the Thames in a gilded barge to the sound of music, laughter and conversation. 
What, this, alert the church elders, music, well, laughter and conversation. Well, the monastic chroniclers were scandalised, apparently, by the dress of the courtiers, in particular the short-skirted doublets of the men, which were worn over tight hose and revealed shameful privy members. <laughs> so something of a 1980s yeah. sort of Bruce Springsteen-style okay. tight jeans uh, affair going on here. backless chaps going on in my head. <laughs> in medieval equivalent. And as we said, Edward, uh, until he got fat, very, very good-looking man, mm. and he knew it. Um, apparently he was aware of the effect that his good looks had on people and he enjoyed showing off wearing magnificent and daringly cut clothes that revealed his fine well-proportioned physique to onlookers mm. so well, he's got it and he flaunts yeah. it and of course as a good looking man and a king he is very very sexually promiscuous it would be mm. well I would be you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Thomas More said no woman was there anywhere whom he set his eyes upon but without any fear of God he would importunately pursue his appetite and have her and then uh, Mancini again said he was licentious in the extreme. He pursued with no discrimination the married and unmarried, the noble and lowly. However, he took none by force. He overcame all by money and promises, and, having conquered them, he dismissed them. None by force, he just paid them. Yeah. <laughs> or won them over by charm, being king and yeah. being incredibly good-looking. If you're king, though, and you're good-looking and the most powerful man in your known world, you, you do that. He's, well, he certainly, yeah. certainly does. He is a fun-loving playboy prince, yeah. and he loves it. Well done, that man. Well done, Edward IV. So, what are we going to give him for scandal? Is there anything he was good at? I mean, it wasn't like a took mass three times a day just to try and make up for it? No, not particularly good. religious well, on any a, grand scale. This is a juicy one. <laughs> this is really good. I, I can't think of a base that isn't covered, apart from... Murder. I know there was the executions, mm. but I think that was, you know, it was an execution rather than a, than a you know... Stabbing. It wasn't like Edgar the Peaceable taking his love rival into a forest and then yeah, yeah, sticking a knife in their lap. Exactly. Um, it's got to be at least eight and a half. I can't see how... I'm going nine. I can't see how you get any... Yeah, I can. Murder. Eight, 8.5. Mm. I'm going to... I'm going with an eight again. Mm. I think it's just another good, good stuff, but... It's not the stuff of legend. Yeah, okay, I agree. It's, it's not the fun-loving stuff. stuff. It's it's rather it's than all the boxes ticked, which is great. But to really get those big mm. points, you have to go. Well, and he actually, yeah. yeah, unreal. You need six wives or murder Thomas Beckett to get those top scores. So it's an eight for me, eight and a half from you. Oh, I'll go eight. I'll oh, you're going eight as yeah. well. Okay, yeah. that's uh, sixteen for scandal, which is another very high yeah, score. Yeah, good score. Subjectivity. So, how well does he rule? Would you want to have been ruled by Edward the Fourth? Start with the good stuff. Yeah, I reckon. He restores royal authority. Royal authority prestige had been seriously damaged by the failings of Henry VI. We had the Wars of the Roses, basically civil war for about mm. 20 years. Edward, basically, although there's more to come after, for this period he effectively ends the Wars of the Roses. Yeah. Decades of war, all gone, respite from international conflict, monarchy restored as this prestigious, grand affair... And he's popular and well-respected. And what's more, he looks and acts like a king, unlike Henry VI. Yeah, and he actually does. For the first time in ages, we've got someone who we can judge subjectivity on pretty well because he's trying to restore this government. Mm. I think it's good. And we have a restoration of law and order, which was one of his first priorities. Um, it really declined from the 1440s onwards. He replaces corrupt sheriffs with uh, more professional men of sort of greater integrity. 1464, he accompanied the justices on a tour of duty in the West to show himself out there personally. And Charles Ross, his biographer, often critical of Edward, that he acknowledges that the business of state was Edward's priority. There's a large number of warrants, letters and petitions with his signature, mm. including a lot of written notes in the margins by his own hand with sort of further instructions. No, right, so he was he reading the stuff. On, he was reading the stuff and yeah. thinking of new things. He also does an awful lot to restore finance and trade for England, because again, under Henry VI... This had really suffered. So in 1461, when he comes to the throne, the crown expenditure was £50,000 a year, which was barely covered by its income. So, so, I, so the crown expenditure was £50,000 a year, yeah. and he gets a pension of 50000 a year. Mm. That's huge. That's huge. Acts of resumption, initially when he becomes king, he revokes the grants and pensions that have been made by Henry VI, purges the royal household of Lancastrians, even considered closing Eton to save a bit of money, but was mm. persuaded not to. Mm -hmm. I'm very close um, he bans the imports of inferior foreign goods to protect English interests and he also tackles piracy uh, piracy sorry, mm. to improve trade Excellent. with the continent 
Um, he's something of an entrepreneur as well. From 1463, heavily involved in the wool trade for his own profit. Really? Enabling him, of course, to live off his own means, because he's making lots of money, but also creating some employment. Like Prince of Wales. Indeed. Mm. Um, 1465, um, he was granted revenues from custom duties at English ports for life, which brought him about £25,000 a year. Uh, he repaid Crown debts, totalling £97,000. And from now on, Crown estates were managed by professionals, again, rather than mm. lackeys. Post-1475, as you said, £50,000 annual pension from Louis XI. Price of priest, but it's pretty good. Yeah. He even demands benevolences from uh, his uh, subjects, his wealthier subjects, which are in effect forced loans. So although it's not hugely popular, it means that he's got an income, which means he doesn't have to get taxes from Parliament. Mm. So for the first time in decades, the Crown is actually solvent. Hey. Which is very well, impressive. Good. Yeah, especially after all that war. Exactly. Yeah. He also, um, as we might expect from his scandalous behaviour, he's got a very affable personality. Uh, Dominic Mancini said of him, he was easy. He was of easy access to his friends and to others, even the least notable. Frequently, he's called to his side complete strangers, and when he thought that they had come with the intention of addressing or beholding him more closely, he was so genial in his greeting that if he saw a newcomer bewildered at his appearance and royal magnificence, he would give him courage to speak by laying a kindly hand upon his shoulder. Oh, that's nice. Nice. He's a yeah. man of the people. That is, Sir Thomas More said he endeared himself to his subjects by small acts of consideration which made more impression than any grand gestures would have done. Mm. So one example is when he invited the Lord Mayor and Alderman of London to come to Windsor, apparently for none other errand but to have Hunt and be merry with him. <laughs> he's, he's, he's fun as well. He's fun, he this likes having cool. a good time. And he had a reputation to be able to remember all the names and faces of all of his associates and officials yeah. and everybody. He can bring them all to mind. Despite the execution of Henry VI and George Duke of Clarence, he actually has a reputation for being extremely merciful. Mm. 1467, uh, 1461 and 1471, the two times he comes to the throne, he shows a lot of mercy to his old enemies, the Lancastrians, and he goes for reconciliation rather than retribution. So he tries to get everybody on board rather than We've just... We've seen that's the best way, though. It's the best way. He let Henry VI live for six years, of course, mm. before he executed him, and he forgave Clarence many times before finally executing him, so mm. it's not that in a rash of temper... Mm. He gets rid of them. He's pretty patient for a while. After the Battle of Barnet, uh, when he defeated Warwick and Montague, their bodies were displayed at St Paul's to prove that they were dead. But after that, he gave them a decent burial at their family vault in Bisham Abbey. We've seen previous kings might have courted their bodies and sent it all across the country, yeah. or impaled their head on a gate, which is what happened to Edward's father. But not Edward, he gives them proper burial. Oh, that's good. Good. And he oversees a very cultured court, as well as its risque nature. It's also quite a learned place, harking back to magnificence that we probably last saw under Richard II. Um, there are elaborate codes of courtesy, so books on manners are written, which include things like the number of steps to greet guests being determined by rank. Um, pages and sons of nobility are for, uh, forbidden to drink wine while chewing. They're not allowed to lean over the table, or indeed pick their noses, teeth or nails during meals. Mm. A bit more orderly affair. Yeah. Economically organised, there's a black book of the household written which stipulates the rights and duties of all members of the household, so it's a bit more efficient, spending money a bit better. And he patronises a person called William Caxton. Ah, printer. The printer. He'd gone off to Germany to learn all about Gutenberg's new printing press, and with uh, Edward's patronage, he prints the first book in English, The Recall of the Histories of Troy. And then in England, um, the first printed book, or sayings of the philosophers and some poems by Chaucer in 1477. That's jolly good. That's huge, though. Very nice stuff. What do you think of the impression that would have made, pun, pun? The, um, Indeed. <laughs> that have, um, Excellent pun. <laughs> that would have uh, had a hell of an impact. Indeed. And he also lavishes money on his favourite palaces, a real architectural patron, Windsor, Sheen, Eltham in particular. More money than any king since Edward III mm. spent on architecture. The Croylan Chronicle said that for collecting vessels of gold and silver, tapestries and decorations of the most precious nature, both for his palaces and for various churches and for building castles, colleges and other distinguished places, not one of his predecessors was at all able to equal his remarkable achievements. You might have seen in those days the royal court presenting no other appearance than such as fully befits a most mighty kingdom. That's, this is good score. This is good score. But we have some negatives. Well, I know. The 1460s, his first reign, he actually struggles quite a bit with his governance. Law and order 
didn't really get sorted out. It was still prevailing, particularly in the north, where we had a lot of Lancastrian rebellions. He raised his money to go off and invade France, but didn't actually bother trying to do it, which you see similarly he does later with Scotland as well. So he sometimes does waste people's time. It's because he had Warwick, though, on his case. He did have Warwick. Yeah. Um, in the north, uh, Ross criticised the leniency that he showed towards the northern enemies. He believed he should have been harsher on them, because ultimately it made the situation drag on a bit longer, and they did betray him, the major nobles. So he says that the policy didn't actually work. Mm. So, hmm. nice, but did it work? He is also criticised for laziness. Now, I don't know, this might be an area in which you feel a certain... <laughs> I, I see, I like this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was said that he'd failed to deal with some of the problems with sufficient urgency and he'd a tendency to shrug his shoulders and let events take their course. You've got to play your cards. Indeed. There was apparently the ODNB biographer said of him, there was a time when he said to a, a sh- one of his sheriffs, sit still and be quiet, which apparently they said could have in effect been his personal motto. <laughs> <laughs> sit back, let it happen. Yeah, good man. But Ross says that this was partly his fault for 1469 and 1470. He was too complacent, didn't get enough done, and that was mm. why he had the problems he had. But he learnt, though, and his second reign was brilliant. It was much better. However, we also have to say the deposition, the Woodville marriage, good for the scandal, but for subjectivity, loses him lots of support, leads mm. to him being deposed, 1469 to 71, major period of upheaval. Without this impolitic marriage, mm. Edward could maybe have been secure throughout. So he does say the country into a bit of turmoil. Says so ten years are bad for that, yeah. Um, well, two years. Two years. Oh, 69, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Ross says the paradox between his success in government but his failings as a politician. He rules he well, nice, but yeah. he yeah. doesn't always think with his head. Mm. Well, uh, unless you've got anything else. I do. Okay. And this is probably the biggest one. All right. We'll come on to it more next week, of course, but his son, Edward V, is one of the princes uh, in the tower. Yeah. So thus, never. Uh, we'll do it next week, but Edward V never crowned and is usurped by his uncle Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who becomes Richard III. So as again, Charles Ross says, Edward IV remains the only king in English history since 1066 in active possession of his throne who failed to secure the safe succession of his son. Many, because he was safely in control. Yeah. No Lancastrian rivals, and yet somehow the situation transpired that he, his son okay, wasn't able yeah. to take over. And some historians blame Edward for this. They said that the Woodfield family alienated many of the peers. Prince Edward V brought up and surrounded by his maternal relatives and there was a real fear of a Woodville regency. Mm. Also, people say that he failed to resolve the feuds which were clearly apparent between the Woodvilles and the major nobles, particularly Gloucester. And instead, his pragmatic, slightly lazy approach meant that he just built up, in effect, two very powerful, independent... Um, sort of mm, bases, yeah. Richard in the north, the Woodville's in the south, and this meant that without Edward there to control it, it all yeah, kicked off. He should have been growing the thistle. Mm. But many would say you can't argue that Richard III's actions were inevitable or foreseeable because he had served Edward very, very loyally. He was his trusted younger brother and he appointed him as the protector of Edward V. Yeah. He really didn't see this coming, and arguably you probably wouldn't. Yeah, and after his death, you can't blame him for actions. He mm. had said, as you say, he set it up well. He's mm. put them in loyal hands. That guy happened to be a treacherous, slippery one. Mm. I think the. I mean, I just think it's the. I don't know. I think it's. I think it's really, really good. Apart from, perhaps, those um, that first that first reign where Warwick was yeah. where I blame Warwick. Mm-hmm. That bit of time where it was a bit up and down because of his marriage. Mm. It's just his ma- it's just that that one marriage, but that was good scandal. Mm. The rest really good. He actually he actually gave ten years of calm after so many years of wars of the roses. Mm. I think it's good. It's interesting. I'm going Histori- seven. Ooh, seven. It's a good score. Historians really uh, polarized by this. Some Christine Carpenter said he should be acknowledged as one of the greatest of all English kings. Others said he was selfish, impulsive, lazy, rode his luck. It's interesting how they really. Separate, mm. but I agree with you. I think he mm. did rule when pretty he, well when he did when he when he was properly in charge and he had some experience. He did well. Yeah, I'd have given him higher, but there was that ten years of, of mm. rubbish. But that was mostly Warwick. But still, that was still yeah seven. Again, your sort of sympathies. He did what he had to when he had to do it, and yeah. he didn't want to do it anymore. When he didn't have to do it, 
he was having fun. Yeah. I'm going to give him a six and a half. Okay. Yeah, a little bit more um, sceptical, but still, 13 and a half is not a bad score for subjectivity. Longevity. Two reigns, of course. Oh, uh, yeah. 1461 to 1470, and 1471 to 83. So in total, that's 21 years. Not too. It's because he died too young. Because he died yeah. at just under 43 years mm. old. He could have ruled for another sort of 10 years, certainly. But, you know, it's not terrible. Mm. Dynasty, not the programme. He has seven surviving legitimate children. Nobody really knows quite how many illegitimate children. Do, does anyone had. understand? There are some who are certainly sort of a good five or six that are known. And it suggested why he doesn't have like the 20 odd that Henry I had. It might just be that because so many of them were pretty notable ladies, yeah. they probably didn't want to acknowledge yeah, okay. it. And also, he probably just had so many that he didn't actually kick, kick count. Um, but seven legitimate children, including two sons. Pretty good. Which is good. So that gives him a total of 73 points. That is good. Which is very good. That's the that's sixth best. It's very impressive. It's very good. So we now have to decide whether or not. He has that great achievement, that lasting legacy, that star quality, which we call the... Rex Factor! This is one where we really do have to weigh up pros yeah. and cons, because there are both. Pros, first of all. Okay. He wins the crown through military victory. Mm-hmm. Twice. Yeah. Puts to bed the War of the Roses. Puts it to bed. Restores royal authority and good government and stability. Bit of a legend. Bit of a legend. A drinker and a horror and a medieval delight. Exactly. Star quality. And as you said earlier, a little bit reminiscent of Henry VIII. Totally. Now, there's maybe more to it than you might have first realised. His portrait um, as a young man, apparently a strong resemblance to the young Henry VIII. Actually a physical similarity. They both came to the throne in their late teens as exceptionally attractive and athletic men, but both had a love of food and... uh, not so clean living and ended up a little fat in later life. Uh, they both threw the country into turmoil in pursuit of a marriage which was for love or lust rather than uh, politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moreover, both Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Boleyn managed to secure the marriage by refusing to surrender themselves to the yeah. king in order to increase Their his affection. Yeah, yeah. very similar relationship. Both combine the sort of brilliance and energy with laziness and self-indulgence. And... Edward IV is the maternal grandfather of Henry VIII. Oh, right. They are actually related. And you often oh, see right. how genera- uh, sometimes it skips a generation, yeah. certain characteristics. So we can see a lot of Henry I think VIII's what we've got here is a blueprint. Indeed. But does that count against him? Is he a sub-Henry VIII? Well, I think he does. The Henry has on him the ultimate scandal and he has so many wives. But mm. this guy had the scandal that was just the wrong wife. But he stayed with her. Indeed. I think that's quite sweet. It, it's, it's, he's, Other he's, than all the whoring that he yeah, does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he has got that total... Uh, yeah, star quality is a great phrase for it. Mm. And, he's, he's and he maybe achieves a bit more, you might argue. Not we've done Henry VIII yet, but Edward IV has got yeah. a few more achievements. Case against. Mm. Lost his crown in 1469-1470. Um, Some would say a bit lucky in the circumstances of 1471 when he gets it back. Tendency towards laziness and indulgence maybe limited his achievements, certainly limited his lifespan. No foreign successes, outwitted by Louis XI of France, doesn't secure the safe succession of his son, Edward V. And arguably, the reason why maybe we, people wouldn't be so familiar with Edward IV, despite all of this, is that his achievements, in effect, are undermined by the way that the Yorkists, within two years, have imploded. So you can argue that it was all very... Very good, very well, but it wasn't stable enough to outlive him. Right. But we've had that before with Canute. Yeah. His sons very quickly lost that Viking dynasty. And they still got it. And the the moment of his reign was Rex Factor all over it. If you consider the uh, first reign as mm. like his apprenticeship, yeah. when the when it was still all in turmoil, had all these, these issues, we had Warwick on his shoulder like... You know, giving mm. him in the air. We still had another king at large. Another king at large. War of the Roses going on. When he puts all that to bed, and let's not forget, he does, and he won it. He won those battles and, and did well in them himself. He was actually there. Very good at putting things to bed. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, he then rules really well. Yeah. I think. I think it's. I think it's brilliant. So, 
both have to say yes for him to get it. Ali, what's your final decision? I'm going yes. He's forgotten by history, admittedly, but that is our loss. I think we need to put him back on the map. I think he's a good one. And I agree with you as well. He deserves the Rex Factor, so that's a yes for me as well. He's yeah. got it. Well done to Edward the Fourth. Well done, Edward the Fourth. You have joined your illustrious counterparts where you deserve to be in history as one of England's great and most exciting star kings. Excellent. Well done, that man. Very, have, very well done. Have a leg of lamb or something that he'd have liked as a well done. Exactly. <laughs> and then have another one if you can fit it. <laughs> Yeah. So that's it for Edward the Fourth. Very entertaining and uh, yeah, what a successful reign. What Great a legend. King. Next time, as we've said, it will be Edward the Fifth, uh, Prince Princes in the Tower. A rather different one. Quite short, I'd imagine. Quite short. We might have to find a different approach to yeah, that one. But yeah. um, stay tuned. Next yes. time, Edward the Fifth. Cheerio for me. Goodbye.